Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Hello, I'm John Barbagallo, a Managing Director at KPMG. And in today's episode, I have the pleasure of discussing some of the key takeaways from the 2023 AICPA Conference on SEC and PCAOB developments with three of my colleagues from KPMG's Department of Professional Practice, Tim Brown, Aaron McCloskey, and Samantha Demty. Tim, Aaron, and Samantha attended the conference last month in Washington, D.C., and I look forward to them sharing some of their insights and observations. Aaron, Samantha, and Tim, welcome to today's podcast. But before we hear from our speakers, I wanted to provide a little background on this conference, which is one of the most sought after and highly attended conferences in our profession. This annual conference is a three-day event where regulators and standard setters from the SEC, PCAOB, the FASB, and the IASB discuss their priorities and provide insights on accounting and auditing hot topics. On our FRB site, you can read KPMG's publication detailing all the events of the conference. However, for today's podcast, our speakers will discuss key takeaways relating to risk assessment, statement of cash flows, generative AI, segments, and of course, some reminders on non-GAAP and MD&A. So Tim, let's start with you. I know that one of the themes that we heard during the conference relates to risk assessment. And this was kind of a continuation of the SEC's chief accountant, Paul Munther's statement on risk assessment in 2023. So give us an overview of some of the key messages you heard at the conference around the importance of iterative and robust risk assessments. Sure, John, and I'm really happy to be with you again today. I agree. We heard a lot of information from a few regulators about the importance of risk assessment. And probably we heard this risk assessment theme across topical areas as well. Paul's statements in 2023 garnered a good deal of attention. It was an important reminder for us as auditors about something that is really foundational to conducting our audits. For our audience, though, I think it's important to point out the importance that risk assessment has within an organization and how that assessment process is at the core of good corporate governance as well as appropriate reporting. What the statement focused on was that a comprehensive approach should be taken to risk assessment rather than what the staff perceives to be a narrowly focused consideration of risk by entities. At its core, what I think the staff was trying to say is that an organization is dynamic. What impacts one area of an entity has a potential to reverberate in other areas as well. So if we take, for example, a cyber attack, a single attack on certain IP of an entity is not solely related to the safeguarding of that IP. Rather, that can have business impacts, it can cause reputational harm, it may lead to litigation or trigger certain clauses in legal arrangements. It could cause the company to be out of compliance with certain laws or regulations. It could have impacts to financial statements, and it does trigger required regulatory disclosure to the extent that that attack is material. Businesses are integrated organizations, and thinking of risks narrowly is not appropriate in today's corporate environment. With that in mind, also consider the global environment, politically, economically, even environmentally. Current events can have an outsized impact on an organization, and again, on various aspects of that organization. Communication across a company with the governance structure of an entity and with an entity's service providers is critical to successfully navigating risks. It's also critical to good reporting 
and it needs to be considered when preparing financial statements and disclosures that are outside of those financial statements. The disclosure of risk factors, for example, has gotten the intention of the staff when companies do not modify those risks that are described as hypothetical. If interest rate instability, for example, is having a material impact on the business, that is something that shouldn't be described as a possible future risk. Thanks, Tim. Very helpful. Samantha, staying with the theme of risk assessment, what could you share about our next key takeaway regarding the statement of cash flows? Sure, and thanks, John. It's great to be here today. The statement of cash flows was certainly a focus of the SEC. The first day of the conference, Paul Munter published a statement on improving the quality of cash flow information provided to investors. In the statement, the SEC highlighted that not all registrants have the same rigorous process and controls around the presentation of the cash flow statement as they do around other statements. The risk assessment and response around the statement of cash flows really should be the same as it is for other accounts and disclosures. For example, the SEC highlighted the need for controls that directly address risk to the statement of cash flows. So think controls that specifically address the classification of cash flows and controls around the disclosure of non-cash items. They also caution against an over-reliance on controls in other business processes that may only indirectly address those threats. They also reinforce that classification errors in the statement of cash flows should be evaluated with the same thoroughness as other errors. In other words, don't assume a little r will always be appropriate. Classification itself is the foundation of the statement of cash flows. So an objective evaluation of materiality is necessary when determining if those classification errors would be material to a reasonable investor. Lastly, the SEC encouraged issuers to consider how best to present cash and non-cash information and whether reporting operating cash flows under the direct method better enables investors to understand the statement of cash flows. Yeah, thanks, Samantha. Staying with you for a minute, let's shift to a topic that's on everyone's mind, Gen AI. You know, Gen AI can provide for advancements in financial reporting, but it also comes with new considerations around governance and internal controls. So tell us about where Gen AI is taking us. Sure, John. Gen AI is definitely different from technologies previously used in financial reporting. And as you said, the capabilities can really have some exciting advancements. The technology panel at the conference discussed the pace of AI adoption in financial reporting and the opportunities and challenges it poses. Some of the use cases discussed, including using Gen AI to analyze financial statements in natural language, instead of performing time-consuming word searches or using GenAI to generate financial statement disclosures based on the accounting framework requirements. These uses can greatly increase productivity through cognitive automation, and they can provide real-time insights and faster financial reporting. Now, the use of GenAI also comes with challenges. The panel discussed the importance of having a trusted and responsible AI approach to designing, building, and deploying AI systems in a safe, trustworthy, and ethical manner. It will be important for companies to have controls around varying aspects of the AI lifecycle, including data integrity and reliability and explainability of the model, or in other words, how and why the model makes decisions. As reliance on Gen AI continues to evolve, the panelists did discuss how human-in-the-loop controls are likely still needed in most Gen AI use cases that we see today. 
Thanks so much, Samantha. Aaron, turning to you, the new ASU on segment reporting was released by the FASB in November, and it received quite a bit of attention at the conference this year. So tell us, what was it about the new ASU that was drawing so much attention? John, first, it's great to be back here again, speaking with you on the latest developments in the profession. As you mentioned, the new segment reporting ASU was issued back in November, just days before the AICPA conference. And overall, the ASU is intended to improve disclosures about a registrant's reportable segments, and it also addresses requests from investors and others for additional, more detailed information about a reportable segment's expenses. But rather than discussing the entire new ASU segment today, I wanted to only focus on one key amendment that was the source of much of the buzz at the conference. That one amendment clarified that if the chief operating decision maker, which we often refer to more simply as the CODM, if the CODM uses more than one measure of a segment's profit or loss in assessing segment performance and in deciding how to allocate resources, the registrar may, now under the new ASU, report one or more of the additional measures of segment profit or loss, but at least one of the reported measures should be the measure that is most consistent with GAAP. That means that multiple measures of segment profit or loss could begin to appear in the notes to the financial statements. Yeah, thanks, Erin. So that doesn't seem too controversial if GAAP now permits multiple measures of segment profit or loss if the CLDM is using the information. So what was all the buzz about? Good question, John. So this amendment is giving a bit of a shakeup to the non-GAAP world. At the conference, the SEC staff from the Division of Corporation Finance clarified that any additional measures reported that are not consistent with GAAP will be considered non-GAAP financial measures. And the reason for that is because the new standard only mandates that one measure be provided. So these additional non-GAAP measures, while they're permitted by the new standard, they are not required or expressly permitted by GAAP. Interesting. Thanks, Erin. So the segment ASU is effective for annual periods beginning on or after December 15th, 2023. So any guidance to share at this stage for companies that are thinking about or what they should be thinking about with regards to the new standard? Yes, two things actually. So first, any registrant that plans to early adopt should consult with the SEC staff when considering whether to present more than one non-GAAP measure in response to the new standard. And as part of that, registrants will also want to consider whether the additional measures comply with existing SEC regulations for non-GAAP measures, and that includes the relevant disclosures. The second is more of a reminder, and that's a reminder to include SAB 74 disclosures. With the new segment ASU becoming effective in 2024, as well as there is a lot of other standard setting going on at the FASB currently, registrants are looking at the adoption of quite a number of standards. And Staff Accounting Bulletin 74, which is also known as Topic 11M, requires that companies disclose the potential effects of the new accounting standards that have been issued but are not yet effective, unless the effects are not expected to be material. So that means in the Form 10-K, registrants will need to disclose, among other things, a description of the standard, the date of adoption, and also the quantitative and qualitative impact of the standard to the financial statements. And one important point here is that if the financial impact is not known or cannot be reasonably estimated, that fact needs to be disclosed as well. Yeah, thanks, Erin. Great reminders. All very insightful information as we head into year-end reporting season. 
Tim, turning back to you, so let's switch gears for a minute and talk about a perennial hot topic with the SEC staff, non-GAAP measures. As you know, we covered non-GAAP measures during our October comment letter webcast, which, by the way, is available for playback on FRV. And once again, at the conference this year, the staff made some comments regarding their observations of the use of non-GAAP measures. So tell us what the staff is saying now about non-GAAP measures. John, that's absolutely correct. And the staff at this year's conference did provide their perspective on what they're seeing. So if for a second here, we take a step back. At the December 2022 conference, Division of Corp Fin released new and revised CNDIs that reflected their current thinking on non-GAAP measures. More specifically, what would not be in accordance with the regulations is what was included in those questions and answers. Well, over the past year, the staff has continued to review these measures in light of that new guidance. And their observation is, well, not much has really changed. That is, companies do not appear to have revisited their non-GAAP presentations in light of this revised guidance. Further to that point, in fact, the staff mentioned that they continue to see a lot of basic, what I'll call blocking and tackling type issues that have kept non-GAAP at the top of the comment letter topics list for years now. Things such as prominence and naming are still those areas where the staff takes issue with many companies. So for this year end, I really encourage companies to take a look at their non-GAAP measures, reread those CNDIs that were released late in 2022, and consider whether your measures meet the spirit of that guidance. It does seem apparent that the staff will be focusing in on these measures yet again during their 2024 reviews. Thanks, Tim. Aaron, take us home with a few reminders about disclosure requirements in MD&A. Sure, John. So with the economic and geopolitical events that we've seen over the past few years coming out of the COVID pandemic, we've seen theft and vandalism to retail stores, supply chain issues, and other situations that are impacting companies' inventory. And when registrants have experienced material amounts of inventory losses that have a material impact on their year-on-year -year financial results, and if there are known trends or uncertainties that will impact the company's results of operations or liquidity, the MD&A discussion needs to include disclosures about those facts. And another MD&A reminder is to revisit disclosures about critical accounting estimates, as this continues to be an area of staff focus. And so the key reminder here is that critical accounting estimates should not be a repeat of significant accounting policies that are in the notes to the financial statements. The significant accounting policies describe the accounting, while the critical accounting estimates are about the estimates and how it may change. So the disclosure should be focused on the methods and the significant assumptions used in the estimates, the degree to which the estimates and underlying assumptions have changed since the last reporting period, and the sensitivity of the estimates to methods and assumptions. So again, the takeaway here is take a fresh look at your critical accounting estimate disclosures and ensure that the disclosure is providing this information to the extent that it is material and reasonably available. Aaron, Samantha, and Tim, thank you so much for spending time chatting with us today. I think that was a great overview of the 2023 SEC conference. Thanks again, and I look forward to speaking with you on future podcasts. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we're social. 
You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMGFRV.